0: Blog Talk Radio podcast. We are a Reformed Baptist congregation that is in the Rock Hill, South Carolina area, and we are a new church plant. Uh, We will be having our first service on April 8th, which is a Saturday night, and we plan on, through the month of April, meeting Saturday night at six o'clock, you can go to HolyTrinityRockHill.org Holy uh, Holy to get our website and find out for the uh, directions. Uh, but we will be starting at 6 p.m. Saturday nights. And then when May comes, we will move to Sunday mornings and offer a full uh, service with the education hour, etc., This is a sermon I have preached at St. Philip Philip the Evangelist Anglican Church. And uh, we'll just spend some time looking at this text. We're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. Chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. I love this time of year. It's uh, always such a wonderful, wonderful time of year. The grass is, is uh, green, and the trees start blooming, and it's just, you see the signs of life. Again, uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful time of year. Winter starts to die. Winter starts to go away, and you just see all these signs of life. Of course, for Christians, we look forward to the resurrection of our Lord, many believers celebrate Lent, which is a time of prayer and fasting and preparation as we get ready for the resurrection of our Lord. We try to prepare our hearts for this, and so for the Christian, of course, Christmas and uh, Easter we would say has special meaning. And for me personally, Easter has special meaning because it was about 13 years ago that I actually became a Christian during this time. Um, I grew up in a Christian home with a father who was a, a, a Christian and a minister of the gospel. But I had a lot of questions growing up. I had a lot of questions about the reliability of the Bible and uh, just the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it was during this time of year, uh, I was flipping through the channels, and here is this debate on the television between a Christian uh, historian, apologist, and an atheist, and the debate was on the resurrection. And, uh, you know, I thought Christians took everything by faith, and uh, the atheists had the science and the reason and the logic, And uh, after watching that debate, though, I was shown that uh, I was very wrong in those assumptions. And long story short, God used that debate to save me. So for Christians, Easter is a very special time. Uh, It is uh, the time we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, who really is the foundation of our faith. Without the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're dead. I mean, it's you know, just uh, do what you want to do, party on, because uh, you know, after after you die, there's there's nothing else. And uh, for some, that's what they would like. <laughs> but um, we know that the resurrection happened, and it's funny how even non-believers sense that there is just something different about this person, Jesus Christ. Even non-believers take note. Uh, you know, Jesus plays uh, roles in many different religions. Uh, in Islam, Jesus is a very uh, revered and respected prophet. Um, in Mormonism, Jesus is uh, a god, because Mormons hold to uh, belief in many gods. Uh, in Jehovah's Witness theology, Jesus even plays a role as Michael, the archangel. And so uh, Christian Orthodox theology is, is, of course, the only uh, religion that puts Jesus in this unique status of, of the second person of the Trinity. Uh, this is what the, the confessions teach. These are what the, the Reformed creeds teach. And um, we believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches and, then, and that the Bible is true. And so let's look at this passage. Let's Let's look at. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. I will be reading out of uh, the ESV. Speaking of Jesus, he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise but they understood none of these things the saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said now one of the most beautiful aspects of christianity is that it can be tested i grew up in utah which is uh you know the land of uh, mormon country and uh, mormons are very very sweet people some of the sweetest people you'll ever meet uh, one of the things you'll notice, though, if you grab a Book of Mormon, is, is that they don't have a map in the back, right? And there's a lot of questions about where where are these lands that are mentioned? Where are these people that are mentioned? Where is archaeological evidence that substantiates this? Where's manuscript evidence that substantiates this, right? Well, what do we what do we see? Right in verse 31, Jesus says going up to Jerusalem, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So in this section, verses 18, 31 through 34, we see the prophesied shepherd, the prophesied shepherd. See, the Bible makes many claims about reality, many claims about reality. For example, the the Bible says uh, regarding some scientific claims, you know, that the, the universe began to exist at a finite time in the past and that the universe is not eternal. Well, up until the 1920s and 30s, it was the the steady state model of the universe was the dominant view. Does the universe itself show signs of design? Or does it look like it came about by random chance processes? Does life only come from life? Or did life come from nonliving materials? See, these are all things that can be tested. These are all things that can be looked at in reality. The Bible makes claims about reality. And one of the things the Bible also makes claims, besides just scientific claims, but also historical claims. And they, they can be tested. Jesus himself, again, says... We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. We see this in two senses. First, uh, Jesus points to the Old Testament that is prophesied uh, about him, right, about his existence. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, I believe it's to the Pharisees, he says, you, know, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Uh, but the, the the Scriptures point to me. They testify about me. Just in the birth of Jesus, there's numerous prophecies. I, I had heard uh, one time over a hundred fulfilled just in the birth of Jesus Christ. But second, we also see Jesus saying um, the future things about him are going to also happen such as uh him being delivered to the gentiles and being mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon right he's saying those things are going to happen now those who are students of the bible and of course we we all should be know that the old testament has a lot to say about the person of jesus of nazareth now i you know do a lot of ministry with college students and high school students and uh, this particular semester, we've been really focusing on: uh, Do all religions lead to God? That's kind of where we're at with the with the college crowd, and then on Thursdays with our high school crowd, we're looking at um, some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And people, a lot of a lot of younger people, and I think there's probably some of the older people as, as well don't really have not really been exposed to a very good Christology or doctrine of Christ. And some of them have this idea that Jesus kind of comes into existence um, at, uh, at his birth, you know and he, he, he didn't exist before that. Uh, but the scriptures teach that Jesus is eternally God. right? We have John 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John one fourteen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us very clearly, Jesus created all things in heaven and on earth. I often ask people, where's the first place we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And a lot of times they'll maybe think of a, a Christophany in Genesis 18 or something like that, um, or 17 where God's wrestling with Abram. Uh, but uh, really we see it in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're told Jesus created the heavens and the earth or had a part in that. So we see his work in creation right from the very first verse. So it's very important that we have a a right understanding of Jesus uh, as the prophets speak of him and the prophets prophesy about him. Now, one of the things that often comes under attack is the prophecies because they're so specific and they're so narrow and it's so amazing that they were fulfilled. And a lot of people just have this anti-supernatural bias. They start from the precept prophecies, the ones that Jesus speaks of in verse 31. They have to try and, and make it fit into their worldview somehow but the problem is a lot of times their worldview Sorry folks there just had a little little tef- technical difficulties um but as i was saying if you have a, a, a anti-supernatural bias and you are convinced that the bio, uh, that God does not exist, then you have to try and figure out some way to deal with the prophecies that Jesus points to. This time of year, especially, the Bible is often attacked. Often attacked. Look, all you have to do is turn on, and, and this happens every every Easter, guys. Turn on CNN, turn on PBS, turn on the History Channel, turn on the Discovery Channel. I mean, they're doing a new series now with Reza Aslan on CNN. Um, and it's it's normally an all-out assault on the scriptures. Rarely do they get conservative theologians who give you the other side. Uh, it's it's always these, you know, super super liberal theologians, and you get one side. Right? I'm not. I'm not against bringing in, you know, liberal theologians, but balance it out. Let the other side at least give the orthodox or uh, conservative view. But we just we see this all the time. So we see in verse 30 again, 31. He says, "We're going up to Jerusalem, so the things that are written about the Son of Man." By the prophets will be accomplished One of the things we see is Jesus appeals to the scriptures Jesus believes that the scriptures are authoritative Jesus has a very, very high view of scripture, friends He says in Matthew 4, verses 4-10 through When he's confronted by Satan He appeals to uh, the Old Testament Specifically, Deuteronomy Three separate times Matthew 5.18, he said that the word of God was imperishable, could not perish. John chapter 10, verse 35, that the scriptures were unbreakable. The scriptures cannot, cannot, cannot be broken. Jesus believed that the word of God was truth. John 17.17, remember Jesus saying, you shall know the truth and the truth should make you free. Jesus has a very high view of Scripture, friends. Again, I, I love, love, love doing Ratio Christi, and uh, one of the blessings that 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 comes with that. And again, uh, for those listening, Ratio Christi is a ministry that I'm involved uh, with. It's an apologetics ministry on the college campus where we're campus ministers, and uh, we lead weekly meetings. Our focus is, is primarily apologetics and theology. Uh, trying to equip the Christian students to be able to defend the faith, uh, and also uh, having dialogue with with those who are non-Christians. But one of the uh, one of the interesting um, events we had this semester was meeting with uh, a Lutheran group on campus. So very nice people, um, very you know very hospitable, and etc. Uh, but also, um, you know, have take a very different view of the scriptures than us. And we met for dinner, and uh, we had about three or four of our students. They had probably uh, 10 to 15 of theirs, and the, the issue or the topic we were talking about was whether or not Christianity was exclusive or inclusive, meaning do all paths lead to God or is Jesus the only way to heaven? And uh, unfortunately, this particular Lutheran group, um, they – again, they would not uh, affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, and uh, they did not think that um, we needed to share the gospel with our Muslim friends or our Mormon friends or our Hindu friends, that that was kind of arrogant and uh, condescending. So one of the arguments that I made because it gave me about five minutes to kind of start and and uh, argue my case was that God cannot err. God cannot make a mistake. God is omniscient. God knows all true propositions. Right. And he knows all things that could be right. Um, God cannot err. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus cannot err. Jesus cannot make a mistake. And so every Sunday. Folks, we go to our churches um, in pulpits across America. You have pastors. I'm not saying this is true of your pastor. I'm just saying that you have pastors, even in my little town in the South of Rock Hill, South Carolina, where it's you know a church on every corner. You have pastors that deny the historical Adam and Eve. They deny that Jonah. ...was a real person. They deny Noah's flood happened and that Noah was a real person. Yet Jesus affirms all of these things. Jesus affirms a literal Adam and Eve in Matthew nineteen four, 4, uh, as well as Jonah in Matthew 12, 40, and Noah, Matthew 24, 37 through 38. The reason I bring this up is because Jesus himself has a very high view of scriptures. He points to them as authoritative, and he's telling them, look... Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets are going, is going to be accomplished. Now, there's one, of the, one of the reasons I would say, again, we have to trust that the Bible is the Word of God is because of the incredible prophetic nature of the Scriptures. Let's look at a few of these prophecies Jesus is pointing to regarding his, his uh, death and resurrection. Let's look at, uh, he's going to be the Passover sacrifice with no bone broken. Exodus chapter 12, 46 says it must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside of the house. Do not break any of the bones. Numbers 9, 12, they must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. You could also look at Psalm thirty four twenty. Okay, now this is uh, the fulfilled in John chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Had a wonderful conversation last Thursday with a young college student as we were discussing the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection and she thought well maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross maybe he just you know the old swoon theory and she asked uh, well, how do we know Jesus was dead and this is one of the prophecies that I bring up is there was not a broken bone see folks uh, when people died uh, back then on the cross uh, one of the ways, that they would die uh, if it wasn't just from the sheer trauma but um as you're on the cross you're extended and you know you've got the the uh, nails through your wrists and through your ankles um you can't breathe your lungs uh you have all that weight coming down collapsing on your lungs and on your chest and what you do is you keep standing up. Basically, is you're you're flexing your legs, and as you flex your legs, you're able to, you know, pull a breath in. Uh, and it's a horrible, terrible way to die. I mean, it's unbelievable. People could even come up with such a cruel way to die, but that's how they would die. And eventually. Uh, what would happen is the guards would come with a big club and they would shatter the legs. And by shattering the legs, the person can't stand up or can't flex the legs to to get a breath. And so um, that's how we know Jesus was already dead. And it was prophesied his bones wouldn't be broken. Deuteronomy 21:23, speaking about being hung upon a tree as a curse for us. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three. Be sure to bury him that day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So we see the corollary in Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree." One of the most amazing passages I've. I remember as a young Christian looking through the scriptures and reading the Psalms and finding Psalm 22 and just blown away by the similarities between Psalm 22 and what we find in the Gospels. But what you see is uh, uh, Psalm 22 saying, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks out to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Well, John 19:28 later, knowing that all was now completed so that the scripture would be fulfilled Jesus said I am thirsty friends we could go on all day with these prophecies um, wonderful little little booklet by Rose publishing uh, called 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus I mean just there's there's numerous numerous prophecies uh, Jesus points to these and he's saying look these have to be fulfilled he's going to be um Delivered over the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be spit upon. Uh, He's going to be flogged. After he's flogged, they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise. So we see the prophesied shepherd. Again, this isn't something that just creeps up out of nowhere in the New Testament. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowd he was going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the assemblies of God. And I know many many good brothers in the Assemblies of God and in the Church of God and, um, you know, a few other Pentecostal denominations. And, you know, for the most part, they're very orthodox. Um, Signs and wonders and miracles have always attracted people. Uh, Even outside of Christianity, many world religions claim uh, signs and wonders and wonder workers and miracle workers. Uh, If you remember, I believe it's Acts 8 with Simon where he has an encounter uh, with the apostles as, as he was known as one that can do wonders and signs and uh, ends up professing Christ and at one point offers to pay uh, the disciples uh, money to get this gift of the Holy Spirit to where he lays his hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit and, and uh, they rebuke him. It's Peter that Peter rebukes him and says, look, you're not right before God. You need to get your heart right before God. You need to repent and pray that God grants you repentance. And this is just how it's been. People, people are fascinated with the miracles and fascinated with signs and fascinated with wonders. And this is always a danger. This is always, always a danger. Turn on TBN, and during almost any time during the day, you find a... An evangelist, you know, one after another, encouraging you to empty your bank account uh, to get your blessing. You know, I, I'm going to be honest, friends. I have no problem calling those people out. I have no problem calling out a Joyce Meyer or a Creflo Dollar or a Benny Hinn or uh, Joel Osteen or any of those guys. And and it's because we have to be consistent, We have to be consistent. If we're going to to put a spotlight on Mormonism and compare that with Orthodox Christianity and explain why people need to come out of Mormonism, and we do the same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses, and we do the same thing with with other supposed groups that claim to be Christian but are not, friends, we have to do that in our own camp. When we have people that are just ravaging the flock – so to speak. I don't want to go on a tangent, Um, but we just, we see this in the American church where there's just numerous scandal after scandal from high profile pastors that have defrocked their congregations out of money and have publicly brought shame to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church. My good friend, uh, Archbishop uh, Gordon, Messaged me when he was in Africa. He's with the Orthodox Anglican community. He's the arch, Archbishop there. Messaged me when he's in Africa, saying, "You know, can you can you send me some resources on the Word of Faith movement because this is such a predominant view up here, and they don't know how to combat it." We need to ask the question as we come to these texts of the miracles: What is the purpose of miracles? Why does Jesus do miracles? What is the point of the miracles? What is the purpose of the miracles? Is it to dazzle the crowds? To get a big following? Well, we see here, uh, verse thirty six, as uh the blind man, blind Bartimaeus, uh he's they're sitting there, he, he hears the crowd going by. And this time Jesus, you know, is getting pretty good crowds. So does he do this to impress the crowds? Is he doing this to, I don't know, maybe extort people for their money? You know, hey, I'll I'll heal you if you do this for me or if you give me this. No, not at all, friends. What we see in this passage is a model, is a loving and compassionate Savior. The purpose of the miracles, friends, catch this, the purpose of the miracles is to confirm A message of God through the man of God to the people of God. Let me say that again. The purpose of the miracles is to confirm a message of God through the man of God to the people of God. See, the miracles point to the authenticity of the claims of Scripture. This is why Jesus does miracles. This is why the apostles do the miracles. We see Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, as he's speaking to the Jews. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, well, then believe the works that you may know and that you may understand that the father is in me. And I'm in the Father. If you don't believe my words, don't believe my words. Right? Talk's cheap. We have people today that go around and they claim to be the Messiah. They claim to be God incarnate. Just listening to a fantastic uh, debate between uh, Christian philosopher and theologian Kenneth Samples and a Hindu priest, and one of the questions uh, you know that comes up is uh, because they believe. Um, Krishna was this avatar, uh, you know, a, kind of a God incarnate. Um, one of the things that I, I often tell people is, is when they're confronted with people who claim to have these powers, tell them, put them to the test. Show me, right? Show me. Uh, talk's cheap. Talk is cheap. John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, But I have testimony more substantial than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, for the very works that I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. John fourteen eleven. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the works themselves. The works themselves testify to who Jesus was and to who Jesus claimed to be. The purpose of the miracles was, was to authenticate the message that started in the Old Testament and is getting ready to be fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of our Savior. So this is where, again, we see verses um, 35 through 40, the uh, 34 through 40, the compassionate Savior, the compassionate Savior. Right, so again, it says verse 35, he's drawn near to Jericho, a blind man sitting on the roadside begging, hearing the crowd, he inquires what inquires what it meant. Well, we're actually told in Matthew chapter 20 – Verses uh, 29 through 34, this is the account, kind of the similar account there, but it's in Matthew. It says that there's actually two blind men at this point. There's two of them. Mark 10, 46 uh, through 52, so you, you have this account in Matthew, Mark, uh, in Luke, uh, tells us that, one, that, that uh, one of the names of the blind men was Bartimaeus. That's where you would get the, you know, you've heard of the blind Bartimaeus. And he was the son of Timaeus. So we see, uh, so there's two of them. There's not just one of them uh, as far as the blind men. But we see that Jesus' fame, his works, they're they're spreading. And at this time, he's still getting these large, large crowds. Well, verse 38, he cries out. Artemis cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him. Telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now it's very interesting. This title, Son of David, it's used numerous times as a messianic title. One well, of the first times we see it is uh Luke chapter one, verse thirty-two, when the angel Gabriel appear appears to Mary. He says he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see this in Second Samuel also, verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Now it's interesting that the crowd is rebuking them and telling them to shut up. And I love again. I love how it says they just kept crying out. They just kept. They just kept crying out all the more. God's telling him be silent, but he, he, uh, verse thirty-nine. He cried out all the more, "Son of David, have mercy on me." They desperately want encounter with the sovereign shepherd, and they're not going to stop until they get his attention, you know, without trying to do any any violence to the text or spiritualize the text, I think we see a good example here of two men who needed Jesus, and they were not going to let the crowd silence them. They were not going to be discouraged. They're going to persevere. They're going to keep going. Uh, you know, I see application with that with us. We, you know, we have other places in Scripture, uh, you know, with the um, – with the unjust judge in the in, in the widow, where we keep um, praying and we keep pressing and we keep um, doing what we have to do, we have to keep persevering. That's what these men did. And that's what I love. Verse forty. They're crying out. The crowd is there. The crowd is large. The crowd is telling them to shut up. Verse forty. And Jesus stopped. And Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. Friends, don't let anybody tell you Jesus is not a compassionate shepherd. Don't let anybody tell you Jesus can't hear our cries and doesn't care about them. Though the world and its busyness and their uh, coldness and the lack of love may want to silence you and tell you to shut up and uh, etc., Jesus cares. Jesus loves us. Jesus cares. Jesus stops. He says, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now Jesus is not, you know, trying to be showy. He's already got a big following. He's not trying to get anything out of them. He's not trying to, you know, tell them to empty their bank accounts, etc. But what we see is a sovereign. Compassionate Shepherd who loves his people, who loves his people. In fact, Matthew twenty verse thirty four, the text says, after Jesus heard their requests, that quote, he pitied them, he pitied them, and then he healed them. Mark chapter ten verse fifty says, one of the men, when 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 they were told that Jesus wanted to speak to them, they literally sprang up. Uh, mark ten they they sprang up they they throw their coats down,' like running to Jesus they come like running to Jesus. So we see not only a prophesied shepherd in verses thirty one through thirty four but verses thirty five through forty we see uh forty one we see a incredibly compassionate shepherd. But now, verses 41 through 43, we're going to see the healing shepherd, the healing shepherd. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. We see... As we continue in verse 43, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. when they saw it, gave praise to God. We see the ultimate purpose of the miracle. And it's to what? It's to glorify God. Again, Jesus doesn't do miracles to exploit people. Jesus doesn't do miracles to gain fame. Jesus doesn't give miracles to increase his popularity. In fact, you have some times where Jesus refuses to do miracles because of certain people. But what we see is after Jesus does this miracle, uh, he recovers his sight and says, he followed him, glorifying God. And then all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God Friends, in conclusion, as we see verses 31 through 34, the prophesied shepherd, as we prepare our hearts during this time of Easter season, let us keep in our own minds that the Christian faith has at its core the historical event of the resurrection who was prophesied starting in Genesis. It's one of the most beautiful things of the Christian faith. It can be tested. These are events that happened in history Right If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, folks, our faith doesn't change that. I ask people all the time, why, do you, why are you a Christian? Well, uh, because I was born in a Christian home, or uh, because I have faith, Faith is not a way of knowing. Faith doesn't Faith is, is a belief that's appropriated. Faith is not an epistemology. Faith is not a way of knowing. Our faith doesn't change anything. As far as whether or not the historical events happened, the Christian faith, friends, is grounded in history. Jesus himself, the prophesied shepherd, points to these things. Secondly, as we've seen in verses 35 through 40, the compassionate shepherd, let us remember the kindness and compassion of our Lord, who has removed the blinders of unbelief. It allows us to see our Lord clearly. Friends, we're not all physically blind, but we were all at one time spiritually blind, wretched and naked. And God in his sovereign grace healed us. He removed the blinders. He opened our eyes so that we could see. It should always draw us to Jesus. It should always point to Jesus. He has given us eyesight, spiritual eyesight, to where we can finally see our shepherd. Lastly, verses 41 through 43, we see the healing shepherd. Friends, remember the healing shepherd, who not only does he do physical miracles where he's healing people like blind Bartimaeus, but he's also done the spiritual miracles and that he's raised us from the dead. We were spiritually dead. Romans uh, 5.12 tells us this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, By nature we're children of wrath, but God in his grace, God in his mercy has has saved us. He has put us out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light. He is the the great healing shepherd who has reconciled us with him in Christ. And so I would just say, again, this, this... Easter season, take time, reflect on the goodness of God, read the Gospels, take time to to read the Gospels, take time to reflect on the Gospels. Renew, again, kind of that sense of of the passion of Christ and the, the miracle of the resurrection and the goodness and the mercy of God. Friends, look for opportunities this week to share the Gospel. God orders all things and he just may have people in your path that he wants and desires that you share this wonderful gospel of grace with. Pray this in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.